Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Okay, guys, if you got your Bibles, let's open up to Psalm 23. This would be a good one to end on uh, for our last week. Psalm chapter 23, and we're going to look at David and his peace. Okay. David and his peace. So again, we don't know for sure exactly when this psalm is written. Some commentators think that it was probably written uh, either during the time or after the time when Absalom had rebelled and was trying to usurp David, take over the kingdom, kill his own father, which probably in a sense was the lowest point of David's life. I mean, he'd had enemies before. Uh, he'd been persecuted uh, but having your own son trying to kill you, trying to overthrow you, it doesn't get much worse than that. And he's fled. And so uh, just three points this morning, really about David's personal relationship with the Lord. And we're going to start out looking at God's provision, Okay, that God is a provider. God provides. Let's look at the first three verses. Psalm 23, and start in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now let's think about this. Uh, for us to really understand this and to experience it, uh, maybe the prerequisite is that we have to think of ourselves as a sheep. And we, we've been around the Bible long enough in church that we know this language, but I think practically we often don't think of ourselves as sheep. I mean, sheep were not known for their wisdom. They're not known for their courage. Uh, they're not known for their strength. They're not known for their sh- uh, speed. They're pretty helpless animals. They're pretty defenseless. I mean, even their hair can grow so long it can get in their eyes and matted and they can't see and they, they don't clean themselves up. They have all sorts of problems. They're so dependent. And to the degree that we can be honest with ourselves, guys, about how weak, how dependent, how needy, how helpless we are, I think it's more realistic that we will have an experience of God as our shepherd drawing near. Again, we were kind of making some jokes there about uh, parenting right before we started the class. And you think about if you have one of your children and they kind of have an arrogant attitude. I don't need your help, Dad. I got this all on my own. Even as you can see that what they're doing is not working out well. Sometimes, as a, as a father, what you might say is, okay, you think you can handle it all on your own? I'm going to let you try so that you'll learn the lesson the hard way by falling on your face. But if your child comes to you in a genuine sense of, hey, Dad, I'm trying my best, but it's still not working, will you please help me? I mean, if that doesn't engender deep compassion, like a willingness to run and help your child. When you can see they really are trying their best, but they're, they, they, they can't do it on their own and they need help and they're humble enough to admit it, something's terribly wrong with you, right? And guys, that attribute in us is just a tiny, dim little reflection of the heart of Father God. And when we can be honest about the reality, I'm a sheep. I mean, God, I might be a fairly smart human being. I might have, you know, a little bit of wisdom compared to some of my family members or compatriots or whatever, but when I compare myself to you, I'm a moron. I'm a loser. I'm a weakling. I'm so weak. I'm so frail. I'm so fragile. My life is such a roller coaster compared to your consistency and steadfastness. That's what draws the Father's heart out, that He wants to come near. He wants to help. He wants to serve. He wants to provide for us, okay? Now, David goes on to say, you're my shepherd, I shall not want. And it doesn't mean he doesn't have desires, right? It means 
I won't lack anything. Now, how can you honestly say this? Because we say, well, no, there are things that I lack. And again, for most of us, we're probably not health, wealth, prosperity gospel people. We're not saying, well, I'd like to have a brand new Corvette or Ferrari and I don't have that. A lot of times we're saying, no, no, I've got a family member that I'm praying for their salvation. Uh, I've got a good friend that's got some terrible health issue. I'm praying for healing. Uh, you know, there's some controversy in my ministry or church and I'm praying for a revival and a blessing there and fruit. We're praying for good, godly things. How can I honestly say I don't lack anything? I don't want anything. I don't need anything. It's the Romans 8.28 perspective, guys, that if God is withholding that thing from us, even a seemingly really good thing, then that means that in His mysterious wisdom, it's best for us in that moment not to have it. And we've got to trust that even on faith when we can't see it. I mean, John Newton has famously said, you've probably heard this quote, everything is needful that he sins. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So if you're going through something right now in your life that's super hard, maybe makes you feel depressed, you've got to trust God in his sovereign wisdom knows that right now, even this pain is best for me. And if there's something that I lack that I really think, it seems to me, God, it'd be better if I had this right now. No, I've got to learn, like Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, I've got to learn the secret of contentment. To be content when I'm hungry and when I'm well-fed, when I'm rich and when I'm poor, when I'm free and when I'm in a dungeon, because my contentment doesn't ultimately rest in human circumstances, but in the divine blessings that I have. Now look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. God gives me rest. And this is physical rest. This is emotional rest. This is psychological rest. This is inner man rest. He takes me to safe places. I mean, sheep, Part of, one of the things about sheep is if you took them to rushing water and it made too much noise, the sheep won't drink the water. They're scared. So a good shepherd had to take his sheep to calm water so the sheep wouldn't be terrified and they'd go drink. That's how stupid they are, how fearful they are. And God knows our weakness. God knows the fears, the temptations, the worries, the anxieties, the doubts we struggle with. And he's a kind, compassionate father. I mean, it's not just safe circumstances. I think part of this is means God's going to give us enough safe relationships in life friends and people that we feel like we can let our emotional hair down and be ourselves and not always have to have our guard up. God knows that we need people like that. He's going to provide for us. He's rich in mercy. He likes to show mercy. He likes to show kindness. He likes to provide for us. Okay. Have you ever meditated on this for a second, guys? In the Ten Commandments, right, the ten most important kind of moral and ethical rules that God could give humanity, one of them is Sabbath. One of them is, I command you to take one day out of seven and just rest. Just enjoy creation. I mean, that's a creation mandate. God says, here's the ten most important things for humans to know, how to obey and please me and honor me. And one of them is, know how to rest. I mean, what a gracious God. He's got the Israelites coming out of slavery where they had to work their tail off every single day. And he's like, no, no, no. This isn't just like an option, like if you're bored and you need a rest or you're tired or something. This is like, I command you. God is so committed to our health, our flourishing in every way, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Okay, He's so gracious. He's so kind to us. Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
Mainly, he wants our spiritual flourishing. He wants our spiritual health. He, he gives me the wisdom I need. Why? Ultimately, for his name's sake, for his honor. Now, guys, I love verse 3 for a couple of reasons, but one thing is you can turn this into a pretty powerful prayer. When you're really struggling with some sin in your life, some besetting sin, that you're like, God, I'm trying to fight, and I feel like sometimes I'm taking one step forward, two steps backwards, I'm not really making any progress. You can say, God, I want you to sanctify me for your glory. For your, I want you to get more pleasure and more joy out of my life, God. And so, Lord, not, not just for my ease and comfort, but, Lord, for the honor of your name, would you sanctify me? This was your idea. This is what you've written into your book. Please make me holy. Please make me more wise. Please make me more disciplined, self-controlled, whatever it may be, ultimately for your glory, for your namesake. And God is a God who provides and he loves to do that. Okay. Now, second point, God protects. He doesn't just provide, he protects. Let's be honest. You read the first three verses of Psalm 23, and it almost seems to be too good to be true, right? I mean, it seems like God and David are kind of having this relationship that it's all a picnic. It's all a vacation. It's just blessing. The sun is always shining on David's back, right? And the birds are always kind of singing and chirping in his ear, and everything's wonderful. Well, no, David's a realist, okay? So the second point is God provides, then God protects. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. So David says, I have been through seasons in life. The, you know, the, the valley of the shadow of death, it felt like death was close. It felt like death was stalking me. It felt like death was a breath away. And again, we may not have had situations in our lives, guys, where uh, we literally thought we were going to physically die. Maybe we have. But we have had times, I bet, where we felt like, I feel like my spiritual life is about to die. I feel like maybe my marriage is about to die. I mean, we go through situations where some relationship, some ministry opportunity is about to die. It's like death is hovering over us. And David's saying, even in those circumstances, I'm not afraid. I don't fear wickedness. I don't fear the evil one. Why? Because you're with me. I know you're with me. Your presence is there. Even if I can't feel you, even if I'm not aware, I know you're there. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, shepherds typically had two tools. Okay, They had a rod. It was kind of like a club. It was mainly for defense. So incoming enemies, maybe a wolf that wanted to come and eat the straggling sheep, the shepherd could hit it, could protect the sheep. That's comforting to know. God is the one fighting our battles for us, ultimately. Yes, we have a part to play, but my part is the minor part, his is the major part, okay? But then also, he had a staff, and sometimes that could be used to discipline the sheep. You've probably heard these stories, but sometimes if a sheep wandered away, and maybe it fell into some kind of little uh, cliff or a crag in the rock, and his leg got stuck, sometimes a shepherd might literally have to break the sheep's leg to get it loose, and then in a sense to discipline it, to bring it back, and then nurse it back to health. And there will be situations, guys, sometimes in our lives where it feels like God is breaking our legs to get our attention. But even then, He's a good God. Okay, I, I literally had a friend that had to have a, a type of knee surgery, and he, his knee was so messed up, and he'd waited so long, but when he went in for the surgery, they literally had to break his shin to fix his knee so then it would grow back the right way. And he's like, hey, I'm going to the doctor. What are they going to do? They're going to break my shin. Well, that sounds terrible. Right? But if you know the whole story, it makes sense. And even think about David. His sin with Bathsheba. 
you arrive at Hittite. Part of the consequence was the first child born in the adultery died. And yet, God was restoring David. God was blessing David. God was using that in David's life. What are all the implications? I don't know. But you know, David never committed adultery again. And so sometimes God will give us a severe mercy. And even in that, we've got to trust Him. Trust His goodness. Trust His provision. Trust His protection. When I was coaching one of my sons in fifth grade football, okay, now, we're in the South. Football's a big deal. All these kids have grown up on football. They love football. But this was at a Christian school, too. So they've all been taught to be really nice and sweet. Most of them never played tackle football before in their life. They've been doing flag football and tag and touch and all that. And so part of what we were starting to say is, no, you, you have to hit the other person. In fact, in some sense, you want to hit them as hard as you can. And I remember trying to explain this uh, to some of the fifth grade boys. I don't know how well it went over. I don't know if their parents liked it very much. But I tried to explain to them, there's a difference between hurting somebody and injuring somebody. Hurting somebody is like you hit them so hard they start crying and they run off the field and they want to you know, talk to their mom. They don't want to play any more football. I was like, that's good. I want you to do that. I want you to hurt somebody. Make them sad. Make them cry. Injuring somebody is like breaking their arm. I don't want you to injure anybody. I don't want there to be anything permanent, right? I don't want you to cheat or spear people or knock it. Don't do anything permanent. You know, but in the moment, if you can kind of sting them, kind of hurt them, that's good. Now, we can debate whether that was good parenting or coaching advice, but I'm trying to make a distinction here. God will sometimes bring very severe pain into our life. At times, it will feel like he's killing us, and yet he's not. He's pruning us. He's cutting us back. I mean, Guys, think about John 15. I love that passage. Okay. And part of what it says is when you're bearing fruit, like when you're one of his people, what does he do? He comes near and he prunes you. Why? So you'll bear more fruit. Now imagine for a second if you were a plant or a tree, but you had a personality, you had feelings, you could talk, you could think, and God comes near and says, hey, I'm just going to chop this branch off, just a little pruning. I mean, that, that's going to hurt. I don't want you to chop my arm off. That's going to be painful. But God says, no, no, trust me. Yes, it's going to be painful in the moment, but in the long run, it's going to bring more spiritual prosperity into your life. It's going to be a blessing. Trust me, even through the pain. Listen, trust God's motive, even when in the moment you feel like you distrust His methods. Have you ever had a situation with one of your spouses? Oh, I started to say one of your spouses. Hopefully we won't have one spouse. Okay? But where you've asked her to help you with something. And she says, yes, I'll help you. And then she starts going about it in a way that you're like, this is a stupid way to do it. This is not the best way. This is not the way I would do it. And maybe you start to say, hey, honey, I'd really like you. And she might say, oh, you asked me to help you because I know something more about this area of life than you do. So will you please be quiet and just trust my method, okay? And if you don't trust my method, trust my heart, trust my experience, even if in the moment you can't trust my method. And you say, okay, and then it works out. Now, listen, Sometimes it may not work out with your wife, right? Sometimes she may do it, and you're like, I told you. But here's the point. It'll never work out that way with God. There may be times in the moment where we feel like, God, your method looks really stupid to me. What are you doing? But I've got to trust the motives of his heart. I've got to trust his wisdom, his perfection, even when I don't like it. Trust him. Now, look at verse 5. This is, this is kind of a weird phrase. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What exactly does that mean? Well, commentators kind of disagree. It could mean either one or two things. It could mean sometimes after a battle was over and you had won the battle, you would bring the captives and you would kind of tie them up in front of you and you would have a feast, kind of like, hey, battle's over. You guys sit here and suffer while I get to eat and kind of refresh myself after the hard combat. That may be what it's referring to as David saying, 
ultimately I'm going to win and I'm going to be provided for, which is true. But it also, and I think this is more likely what it refers to, that even in the midst of battle, God still meets us and provides for us. And if you go read the story in 2 Samuel 17 where David was fleeing from Absalom as he's crossing the river and getting away, I mean literally like by the skin of his teeth as Absalom is riding into Jerusalem with his army, there's a man that comes out and provides a feast for David and his men in the worst night of his life when he's fleeing. Okay, And I think there's a story about John Patton, uh, the missionary to the New Hebrides, where... You know, he went there, one of his wives died. I mean, he, he had all sorts of trauma. And they were cannibals that he was trying to minister to. And one night, he heard they were coming to get him, to kill him and eat him. And he had to run, he had to hide in a tree. But he talked about as he was hiding in this tree, and he could hear the drum beats of the cannibals, that he had this worship experience with God. that was like the best, deepest worship experience of his life. And he's like, it made it all worth the while. It's like I didn't care anymore. And I think that's part of God's provision is like in the worst night of your life, in the valley of the shadow of death, the darkest days, the hardest days, I will meet you, I will sustain you, I will bless you. I'll give you a feast for your soul. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Oil was a sign of blessing. It was a sign of the Holy Spirit. It was a sign of God's presence, of his nearness, of his love, of his smile, of his warmth. My cup overflows. Guys, if you don't get anything else out of this class, okay, here, here's the one thing. If you've forgotten everything else, here it is. Minister out of overflow. My ministry to other people, whether that's to my wife, to my kids, to my staff, to my students, needs to ideally come out of the overflow of my personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read all the leadership books in the world, all the discipleship books, all the evangelism books, you know, all the strategy books. There's a place for that. But the best thing, the deepest thing, the truest thing is worship the Lord. Have a feast at His table with Him over His Word and people are starving and they will come near to you just to eat the crumbs off of your table. Because what they're getting off of TV and Netflix and Facebook, it, it, it's so trivial. It's so stupid. It's so hollow nine times out of ten. And if there's substance in your life, not perfection, but there's substance, there's depth because you're worshiping the King of Kings. You're seeing Him. And slowly but surely, you're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. People will be attracted to you spiritually because they see Christ in you. Minister out of overflow, God. God is not a bare minimum God. He loves to give good gifts to His people. He's not stingy. Right? He's, he's overflowing a blessing. And as I will worship him and experience that, by God's grace, I will overflow and be fruitful in my ministry in degrees to others. God provides, God protects, point three. God pursues. God pursues. Look at verse six. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay? Now, the word here for follow Okay, is literally pursuit, and it's like a military pursuit. Like an enemy is running away, and you're chasing him down, and you overtake him. Okay, to use another football analogy, you're the defensive player chasing down the quarterback, and you tackle him from behind. Now, remember, David in many ways, humanly speaking, was a godly guy, a gold standard in the Old Testament. And yet he had some pretty terrible sin, adultery and murder. And God and his love. And listen, David didn't repent at first. At first he lied, he covered up, he tried to hide it. Nothing to see here, everything's fine, moving right along. 
thought he had a good plan. And God in his mercy sent Nathan the prophet to pursue and tackle David with his love. It was an aggressive love. It was a painful love at times. But that's how committed God is to us. He chases us down. He tackles us. Guys, and there have been times I've even prayed in my life when I'm really struggling with something. I'm like, Lord, I don't want you to be the perfect gentleman that stands outside the door of my heart and knocks. I want you to act more like a SWAT team commander and kick the door of my heart down because I know my stubbornness. I know my arrogance. I know the sin in my own heart. And if you don't just invade my heart, I'm afraid that I might stiff arm you too long, Father. I don't trust myself. Kick the door of my heart in. And listen, honestly, guys, the only reason that I'm standing here still in ministry is because God answers prayers like that. So beg the Lord, come after me. Spare not for price nor pain. Do whatever you got to do in my life. I read this poem one time. It said, burn in me fire of God till only your image remain. You know, do, do whatever it takes, God. Refine me. And in a sense, David's saying, that's what God does. Now, you might say, well, how far will God pursue me? And you know the answer. As far as it takes. As far as it takes. Okay. Now, this psalm is full of highlights, guys. Okay. A lot of good things. There's no complaints in this psalm. There's no, there's no uh, oh God, you know, I'm suffering so much. This is more kind of David looking back and praising. Okay. One commentator said this. He said, this psalm presupposes an awareness of helplessness and need just like I was saying at the beginning. Think about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul talks about, I will therefore all the more gladly boast in my weaknesses. What exactly does it mean to boast in your weakness? I don't think I fully understand that, to be honest. <laughs> okay, But maybe I've scraped the surface just a little bit as I've tried to pray and think and meditate about it. And here's at least two things I would say. The first thing is, you have to... Admit your weakness to yourself. You've got to be honest about it. Here's where I'm weak. Here's where I'm not strong. Here's my besetting sins. Here's the temptations that I seem like I keep facing over. That's at least step one. And then I think step number two is you've got to talk to other people about it. Right? I mean, if you're going to boast, there's a sense of, hey, I just want to let you know I'm not the total package. I might have one or two gifts by the you know, grace of God, but i got plenty of weaknesses. i got plenty of sin struggles. i got plenty of stains on my record. And I'm not glorying in my sin, but I am being honest about it. And that seems to be where the wind of the Holy Spirit can blow. But guys, this is not the natural sinful human tendency, is it? You know, you read Genesis 3 with the very first sin, and then I like to talk about the sin after the sin. Because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned and realized it, their first response should have been, run to God and say, Mercy, give us forgiveness. We're so sorry. Come back. They didn't do that. What did they do? In a sense, they first ignored their relationship with God, thought more about their relationship with each other, and started putting on fig leaf righteousness, trying to make themselves look better than they were, putting their best foot forward. And that is the sinful tendency of the human heart all the way to today, right? Think about the last time you clearly sinned, and you knew it, and the conviction comes in. How often is the second thought, I can't tell anybody about this. I can't let anybody know. Or maybe I'm going to have to talk about this in my accountability group, but i got to go ahead and think of a way to spin it so it doesn't sound quite as bad as it actually is. We're masters of that, aren't we? And it's wickedness. It's evil, and it shows how much we don't really rest in the goodness, the sovereignty, the grace, the mercy of Christ. Um, 
had a family member, my extended family at one point, who was having some money trouble troubles, and my wife and I were trying to help this person. And we knew there were money troubles. But we kind of asked, hey, how's everything going financially? And they were like, oh, everything's fine, everything's great. Right, even though we saw the bank statement that talked about the bounced checks. We, we were trying to help. We weren't trying to rebuke. We weren't trying to go. We were like, we want to help you. But it's kind of hard to help somebody when they're lying about it, trying to cover up. But that's a picture of what we oftentimes do, guys. We're like dumb sheep running from the shepherd, right? Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. So flip to John chapter 10 really quickly, and we'll wrap up with this. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and you probably don't even have to flip there. I think you're going to know this first. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How far... Will the Lord pursue us all the way from heaven, right? He left his Father's throne above all the way down into the depths of hell for us, taking our hell, taking our sin, taking our shame upon his back so that he can wipe it out. He can cover it. Okay? Listen, it's not only that he will lead us through the uh, valley of the shadow of the death. He can say, I've been there. Not just like I'm going to guide you. It's like I've already been through it. I've already been through it and I conquered it. And I went all the way through it. All the way through death. All the way through hell. And I came out on the other side. And part of what it means to be saved, to be joined to Christ, to be married to Christ, to be in Christ's adopted family, that he's my big brother now, right? Union with Christ. Is that, hey, if he made it all the way through death and hell and he's in heaven... I'm guaranteed going to be there one day with him. In fact, based on Ephesians 2, in some sense, I'm already seated on the throne in heaven with him. I don't feel like I am, but positionally that's true of me, and practically it will be true of me. Guys, when that sinks into the depth of my heart, I'm going to sit on a throne with Jesus one day in heaven in all bliss and perfection and reign forever and ever and ever and ever. No sickness, no trials, no suffering, no sin, no temptation. Crown, glory, delight, beauty. One. You got a little suffering today. Ah, who cares, <laughs> right? It's small beans. It doesn't matter compared to what he already suffered for me and compared with the glory that is to be revealed in each of us. So... I'm hoping, I'm praying, guys, for myself and for all of us, that more regularly, coming out of this class, on a daily basis, we can take the Bible, mainly the Psalms, but take any place you want to, and try to really go deep in your worship. And part of our praise, Lord, give me a sweet enough, a fresh enough, real enough worship experience that at least lasts me 24 hours. So when sinful temptation comes at some point later in the day, whether it's to anger or lust or greed or worry or whatever it may be, that the power of my rejoicing in you will free me from the power of that temptation. And then just do that every day. And even on the days where it's like, I don't feel like it's happening, God. I showed up, I woke up, I spent time with you, but it felt dry and boring and dead. Or maybe I overslept and I didn't get to spend time with you. That even then, by faith, we can say, Lord, I don't feel anything. But I still trust your goodness because I know your character. You're a provider. You're a protector. You're a pursuer.
So even when I feel nothing, I still rest in your goodness by faith. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I plead and beg with you to make us into the men you want us to be by faith. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. 